0: nonprofit governance nonprofit answers nonprofit board nonprofit management nonprofit marketing nonprofit
1: resources welcome to nonprofit everything the podcast where hosts Andy Shurek and Stacy Wedding answer your questions about all things nonprofit Hi, hey everybody. Welcome to another episode of Nonprofit Everything. I'm Andy Schuricht. I'm here with Stacy Wedding, the smart half, and we're here to Whatever. answer all of your nonprofit questions. I know we always like pretend that we're so, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why we do that. We both do it. We're so like, pretending like self-deprecating, like is,
0: Andy. Maybe we, we need are. to own it and be and like, damn, I am smart.
1: Well, like, think about this. Like what, like what, and maybe this is just a some sort of like imposter syndrome. Like we have a podcast where we're pretending to be experts on the nonprofit sector. Right. (laughs) And so we have to lean on each other so that we don't just like get crazy big heads about like having this role. Maybe that's it. I don't know. I I think we do a pretty good job. People listen. People ask us questions and they listen. So it must be not the worst. So we should probably just own it and say we're both smart. But the way you ask us those questions is you send us uh, emails is one way to do it. You can send it to questions at nonprofit That's one way you can go to the nonprofit everything website, which also has show notes for all the other episodes, plus an archive of one hundred and thirty something other episodes that we've done so far, which has been like one every two weeks for the last six years, wow.
0: I think. Are we at six years? Oh, my gosh. How I think did we're that at happen? six
1: years. This is very exciting. So if you go to the website, there's all those archived episodes there. And, and we do see like, we can see who listens to what and at least what, how many, how many downloads of each episode there are. And, and it's kind of across the board. Like there'll be a big spike for the most recent episode for those of you that are all caught up. But then I think people just kind of dip their toe and they're like, Oh, oh, here's a topic I'm interested in. So they'll listen to something from like four years ago, which is great. So it's like kind of evergreen content that you can always go back to and learn something that you didn't, like maybe you forgot. I know I forgot. I can't, I can't tell you what all the episodes are about. But if you go there, there's a big button you can use to ask us a question. Um, that gets to us and we will put it in the queue and we will get to it um, when it's your turn. Okay, Stacey, this one's for you. What are some tips and tricks in engaging your board in fundraising activity and strategic planning?
0: Andy, that is such a big question that I feel like we could, yeah, have an entire episode on one of those, right?
1: Tell me everything. Yeah. It's like, uh, where do
0: (laughs) I begin? Uh, So I guess I, I tend to think about this in ways that, I mean, always starting with the why, like, I don't always know if board members understand the why both are important. So I think sort of starting with the why, but then thinking about tips and tricks, ways I've seen work well is little bite-sized nuggets at board meetings. So having, for example, maybe it's a mini Rapid fire education session on strategic planning 101 or a strategic question your organization is facing, or even an update on your strategic plan that you're wrestling with and you want to get board feedback. So, there, there's like ways to start to introduce it because that's the sense I get from the question is like, how do we get people engaged to begin with? So, like, one of the ways to do it is I think in smaller you know, bite-sized chunks that 15 minutes, 20 minutes, if you can afford it or make time for it at a board meeting or like a fundraising, you know, quick little fundraising activity. One of the things that I've seen that can be kind of fun is, you know, having board members pair up during a board meeting and pretend like they're making a pitch or making an ask with, you know, somebody and just have them get comfortable doing it. I also think, Other ways to sort of engage people in these types of things is to give a shout out to those who are doing it well and may not even realize it. So sometimes saying, Hey, like if you're the board chair or if you're head of the development committee or something, Hey, you know, I just want to say that so and so on our board just did a great job of saying thank you to a donor and making them feel like a hundred bucks. And so-and-so, can you share a little bit about that experience or whatever? Because then it kind of gets board members listening to board members instead of it just being staff-driven. I mean, staff can play a role in this, absolutely, but I think board members hearing from their peers about what their peers are doing around fundraising or even thinking strategically for the organization, I think that sometimes is great when a board chair And an ED can come together with one strategic question or like, we really want to spend some time at this meeting talking about this, or we're going to embark on a strategic planning process. And we know some of you have your eyes rolled back in your head, but let's talk to you about how we make this like a meaningful experience for you and the organization. And that's where you get to figure out, does the full board have to play a role in every aspect of strategic planning? Not necessarily. So are there parts you bring the board in for strategic planning? Are there parts where you have maybe a smaller strategic planning committee that's helping do more of the lion's share of the work, but getting board feedback along the way? So all of these ideas, I'm giving you kind of a smorgasbord because you said tips and tricks. And the way I see it working is peer-to-peer, absolutely. Sometimes breaking it down into bite-sized chunks, not just doing this once a year kind of training or every few years strategic planning, because then it's not part of the culture fabric of the organization. So I think there's room to kind of bring it in more frequently in ways that we don't even always label it as fundraising or strategic planning. It's about a discussion, a dialogue, interaction, peer sharing, and it just starts to then naturally evolve. So those are just a few ideas. Andy, what do you think?
1: Not that I, I mean, obviously everything you said is right, but I think I wonder when, When we think about those two activities, board fundraising and then strategic planning, these two things seem really different to me because strategic planning is something that's like an internal thing that we do as a staff. We may engage people outside to try to see kind of what we might want to find out what people think of the organization or what externally what needs we have. But it's almost usually an internal process where we're talking to staff, we're setting goals, we're trying to figure out you know what, where does the business go next, what makes the most sense, and then fundraising always feels sort of more external to me. Like we're not we're going to learn from internal, we're going to learn from inside the organization to figure out what to do, right? But then it's a conversation like how do you talk to people outside the organization, how are you prepared to make an ask, all those kinds of things. They feel like two totally different things to me. Um, so. With that, what do you, what would you say like for, cause strategic planning, I guess seems sim- simpler to me, right? So for strategic planning, if you've got a board that's just like not into it, like what would you, what would for strategic planning specifically, what would you say to them? If they're just, you have a hard to, it's like pulling teeth to try to get them to deal with strategic planning stuff. Cause they've either had a bad experience or, you know, whatever reason.
0: I truly would use different terminology because I think there is a lot of baggage that comes with both of these terms, strategic planning and fundraising. And it's not about trying to, you know, what's that old phrase, put lipstick on a pig. I'm not trying to say be inauthentic about what it is, but it's sort of that idea of like we want a vision we want to dream a little bit about our future we want to think about what's going on and have a much bigger picture conversation so we're setting so i might frame it more like that here's a few kind of key questions we want to have you start thinking about that we're going to tackle at this half day retreat or whatever and those questions are not what are our goals what are our objectives? Like, I think the questions are bigger than that. Like, hey, you know, if our organization were gone tomorrow, what would be lost? What would the community lose? What, what wouldn't be there? If we got $10 million that came to us unexpectedly, what would we do with it? So a little bit of these sort of more Bigger picture questions that start to get people comfortable just talking because I think strategic planning feels can feel so rigid and structured and we, is that a goal? Is that a smart goal? Is that a, <laughs> right? Am I right? Yeah,
1: yeah. And we're gonna talk about the mission statement one more time. Do we need to go wordsmith the right. mission statement for the and ten thousand? So I kind
0: of go, how do we make it bring it back to a conversation and sort of it ask ourselves some of these questions? And so that's how I would approach it is sort of starting it out with something that gets people warmed up so they're actually excited about it. And then that's where you get the people who really nerd out and love strategic planning and want to figure out the metrics and the KPIs and all the what are the goals like and how are we going to wordsmith this great then maybe that's where that lies with staff or some committee mixed of staff and board members or something for those who want to dive in and then you know you of course keep bringing it back sort of checking in with the board like hey we took what you just said and here's what we did with it i don't know, th- that's the way i would i mean And it's funny because I do think, agree with you that they're different. Um, Fundraising just is like this external activity. I mean, it's oftentimes, right, included as part of an activity or tactical thing in a strategic plan, but the strategic plan uh, is much more in, it's internal, but, but I guess I would also say when you say internal, Andy, like what comes up for me is thinking about how much are organizations really getting a pulse check on what's going on with those they serve? How much are they figuring out what's going on besides their internal four walls to come up with that plan? Because when I think of internal, what I would hate is for listeners to think, oh, yes, this is just about our our internal organizational goals. Yes, that's part of it. But like those should be informed by external factors and what's going on outside our four walls. So is that what you meant when you sort of said internal? Like is or were you thinking it differently than I, I'm thinking of it?
1: I, you're right. I think that I was thinking more of the activity itself, the the strategic planning process itself happens internally. It doesn't mean you only look internally. You're right. It's that's would be completely wrong. You have to look at the external environment and make sure that what your nonprofit is doing still makes sense with the rest of the world. But it's more of a you know, we're not going to, we're not asking other people outside the organization to help with this. We're going to do this kind of ourselves with, with input from other people, if that makes any sense at all. It does. So with the, with the, you know, the strategic planning process being something that staff is usually driving, a lot of times you may have a consultant involved that's helping you kind of keep it on track. There's the the one thing that I think I've found that boards like about strategic planning is this is the one time we actually get to talk about big picture things instead of like, oh, gosh, we're going to have to listen to one more development report. Yeah. or We're going to have to go through whatever the the nonsense in the minutes that make us walk through like all of the bylaw junk. Um the <laughs> approve the 990 for the 430,000th time. That's super boring task that no one wants to read anyway. But this is the opportunity that the board has to say, this is where I think you know, looking into the future, knowing what we know, this is the direction I think the community is going in. And so what are we doing to sort of make sure that we're prepared for that activity? Or are we doing something that we don't necessarily need to do anymore because it's kind of been solved in a different area? Is it time for us to sort of rethink our overall strategy for how we serve our community? That kind of stuff. I think that's what makes it fun. At least my perspective, that's what I think is fun about strategic planning is getting to step back out of this day-to-day mundane activity and look at the big picture, which you never get to do. Certainly boards never get to do that much.
0: No, I was just gonna, you know, one of the things I was gonna add to that, I, I totally agree about that big picture. Like that's kind of, that's energizing for some people. And how do you set your board up for success with that? And I think that comes back to all those reports or all that information you're giving them the rest of the year, because what happens is how many times do you see board members get into a strategic planning session, but if they don't know enough about the sector or what's going on with your peers or collaborative, like they feel sort of ill-informed. Yes, they have their own lens through their own business or networks in the community, but, but sometimes they feel at a loss for that bigger picture stuff. So I also think, how can we along the way be sharing with them enough that they like understand the movement of what we're trying to solve or that larger picture issue, so they can actually really be a valuable part of it. So just a side note.
1: So moving on to the fundraising side then, that's for most board members, I'd say I'm going to stick with most. I was about to qualify my statement with maybe not most, but I think it is most like fundraising is really scary. It's not something that they're well prepared for in most cases, especially in smaller nonprofits. In bigger nonprofits, you have more staff that can spend some time training board members. But how do you get, I mean, the the word is like engaging. So I think engage means, uh, at least to me, engage means be excited about um, and not necessarily just, you know, in gear, (laughs) really just barely functioning. How do you get a board to even start to think that fundraising is something that isn't the scariest thing in the world?
0: I go back to explaining to them what it is, in know, its full kind of completion, right? Like, like, it's not just about making me ask, which is what the majority of board members don't want to do. So it's not just about that. And let's just walk through a few examples of donors at our organization and how they got introduced to us and what we did after that. And this sort of like, because you've got those board members that love relationship building, that love their natural connection matchmaking people, right? Or that love like their gratitude. They come from a place of gratitude and they really want to shower that. Or they come from a place of metrics, of thinking about the bigger picture of Where our revenue comes from and what risks lie with it. So, like, I guess I just sit there and I feel like, how do we build it from a place of strength? What are board members' individual strengths? Like, and so not every board member has to go make an ask. And so, like, that's how I think we make it fun is like, hey, what's something that, like, in your own business you do that you think you're really awesome at that's sort of tied to business development or relationship development? Talk to me about that. Great. So can we take that skill and can we apply it to our organization? To me, that's what starts to make it fun because someone goes, cool, I can be successful at this. I'm not intimidated by it. I'm not scared of it. So like, I don't know, to me, like... Without that, I think it flops because you're forcing people are their volunteers are ready, right? They already like have limited time, and now you're going to force them to do something that they really hate doing. Like, how is that a recipe for success? I, that's at least the way I look at it.
1: And I think there's some some sort of experiences that board members have of trying to sell. You know, they may have worked with another nonprofit that isn't as sophisticated. For for whom they just said, well, your board requirement is that you have to raise $2,500 a year for the organization, but they don't give you any tools. And then they have these flashbacks. I don't know when I was in, when I was a kid, I was in Boy Scouts. And the Girl Scouts had like, it was the best, right? They had cookies and you would, they'd stand out in front of a supermarket and just like unload cookies all day. And they'd make tons of money just selling cookies. And the Boy Scouts, like at the time, like had no concept of how they were going to do it. And so what we what they did instead is they had this thing, it was called the, either the camporee or the jamboree or something like this. And so you'd stand out in front of a supermarket, at least this is what we did and try to, sell tickets to something that no one had any intention of ever going to. It didn't sound interesting. It's like, do you want to go to the Boy Scout Jamboree? The ticket's only, whatever, $10. And people would just look at you like, it's just pity. They're either like going to give you $10 because they feel bad and you're standing, it's, you know, it's 120 degrees outside and you're standing wearing long pants and a neckerchief. <laughs> like, and they they feel sorry for you. So they're going to give you money. But this is like, the, I, I hated that. And then the other thing, then they'd sell you, like, tell you to like, Here's some popcorn. Just walk around your neighborhood. You know, you've got 50 bags of popcorn. You have to wander around the neighborhood and knock on doors and see if people want to buy popcorn. That's like, for me, at least that was the worst experience. And the fact that that like fundraising for a nonprofit has nothing to do with that same experience. Most board members have no concept that those are different. And so getting them beyond this like innate fear of like having to pitch someone on some sell something that nobody wants And that it's going to be a really excruciating experience, I think, is probably a really good first step, which is why we have so many gala events, right? Because we immediately have fear of trying to sell something no one wants. And so we default back to the one thing we know, which is well, why don't we just have a party and then we can sell tickets to the party because then we've got an exchange transaction happening.
0: I love, though, your point about letting people get out the parts that make them uncomfortable, nervous, not bad experience. Like literally imagine that, right? You start a retreat and you say, what was like what's your most awful thing? Like when you think of an experience of like having to ask someone for money for something, even if it was, and you could use your Boy Scout example, right? What is that for you? And it lets people get it out. And then you say, great, okay, we know you had those experiences and here's how fundraising is different when it's done the right way. And here's why it's not going to be like that. And then I think like on the flip side, the other thing that could be kind of fun, I've done it with groups and I love it, saying to people what is that moment what was like did you have a giving experience that just sticks with you because you just the entire gift of making a gift whatever happened before you made the gift or after what was your best like the one that you will sit there and remember for the rest of your life and that brings up just the opposite then you hear people go oh yes yes it was this, or when someone did this for me. And so like you start to get people into the feel good part, you start with the negative, like what you said, right? Like get it out, get that cleanse. It's like a cleanse, a fundraising cleanse for you, right?
1: Can you explain the intended dynamics between an executive director and board? Who reports to whom and what are the reporting mechanisms like an annual review? How does all of that change if the ED is a voting board member? In a situation that I'm familiar with, the program staff is unhappy with the ED, the admin staff is unhappy with the ED, the leadership team's unhappy with the ED, the leadership team's also unhappy with the board in general because the board is happy with the ED. The leadership team has some good relationships with individual board members that are specifically active, but that group is small relative to the large board of more than 30 members, most of whom don't seem to be paying close attention to anything other than the top line. By the way, how common is it for the ED to be a voting board member? Is that enough of a question for you, Wow, play, There are
0: like, uh, <laughs> I don't know, five questions in there. <laughs>
1: You might as well, if you're going to, you, seriously, if you're going to throw a question onto the podcast, like jam as much into there as possible. I love it. We love that.
0: I actually love <laughs> it when people do this and it actually, uh, it's very juicy. Uh, yeah. So, um, I'm going to, I'm not going to go into, cause if I spent the amount of time on each one, we'd be here all day and nobody wants to be here all day. So intended dynamics between the ED and board. Right. So, I mean, I think there is. What is, you know, the board obviously is considered the governing fiduciary body, right? The executive director traditionally reports to the board, and the board does an annual performance review of the ED. That's part of, you know, the board has that duty of care as one of their fiduciary duties where it's basically, you know, how are we going to uphold and make sure that, you know, this organization is cared for, taken care of, that we're doing our job as a board to um, execute on our responsibilities. And duty of care is one of those. And so that kind of falls into this bucket of oversight of the ED and, and that annual performance review Now, I'd like to just like take a quick sidestep. You all have probably, anyone who's been a longtime listener knows I'm a huge fan of like partnership instead of this hierarchical, like, "Ah," because I just, I don't think that's healthy. I don't think it's where the world is going. And I think there needs, it needs to be more of a partnership. So, but that's getting into nuance and I'm getting away from the question. So I'll just stop that there. And we certainly have talked about that before and I'll, probably talk about it again till I'm blue in the face. So um, from a standpoint of it, just for the listeners who may not be aware of some of the structures, right? You have one sort of camp where or executive director is doesn't serve on the board at all. So there's that scenario, which you see out there a lot. There is this scenario where the executive director actually serves on the board as a voting member. That is much rarer. Like, that's very, it's it's less common. There's actually been studies um, based on national board surveys that show that in general, and this was a handful of years ago, so it's not current data, but like when they did a study on how many EDs were actually voting board members, it was something like, 12% like that took the study said that they were actually a voting board member. So it, it is potentially permissible depending on state law. So that goes back to state law. Some states allow that, some actually don't. So there's some layers there, but it it can be one of the options if an organization chooses to go that way. The organizations who tend to fall into having a board or a ED serve as a voting board member tend to be larger organizations, you know, budgets exceeding 10 million bucks, maybe like an association type, uh, trade association type setup. Those are the ones where you tend to see that structure. Um, But the most common, I feel like that is out there and that I see the most of is a executive director who serves on the board as an ex-officio non-voting board member. So ex-officio by way of their position, right, as executive director, as long as they're in that position as ED, they get to serve on the board, they get to have, you know, a voice at the table in a way that might not be afforded them as just an advisor to the board. So sort of looking at it more from a a, a bit more of a peer lens philosophically is why a lot of organizations like that structure. Um, the challenge, so back to like, how does all of this change, right? These Board ED dynamics, this annual performance review, how does it change if the ED is a voting board member? I mean, what it means for any ED or staff that are listed as voting board members, in, you know, if assuming that is in accordance with state law, then it's about making sure there's a very robust conflict of interest policy, right? You can't, you can't be a part of decisions. Uh, and, and you probably need to recuse yourself in some circumstances, right? Things to do with your performance evaluation. You are you are not going to be one of the people deciding on your compensation for that. Like, that's the board's role. Um, so, so that's an outright example, but there's other nuances that come into play with other types of decisions that when you're kind of an executive director, having a vote may be perceived as a conflict. So it really what you find is organizations that have an ED who's a voting board member have usually fairly substantial samples of what is or isn't appropriate for that ED because they are an ED to participate or vote on. So so it's a little bit of there's sometimes a lot of things where they are, have to recuse themselves, which kind of If you ask me, that sort of takes away the whole point of why like they wanted. Maybe they wanted to be a voting board member like like on some of those issues. And and what you're trying to do is avoid that undue influence that can come from, you know, or or sort of something that helps that takes away from looking at what's in the betterment of the organization and becomes more like what's in the betterment of this individual. That's what you're trying to avoid. And so it gets a little stickier. When it is a voting, when the ED is voting uh, on the board, in my opinion, it it just gets a a little hairier, a little stickier. The only other like caveat, the other, of course, there's lots of caveats here, right? But I feel like one of the things we have to think about that most organizations don't ever even talk about when they put their ED as an ex officio is, you know, board members are bound, right, by legal fiduciary obligations. So you've got to just think about your protections from an insurance standpoint. If you are a non-voting board member or you're by way of position ex officio on your board, you could still be held to some of the same legal standards as your fellow board members, but you you know, don't have voting privileges like they do. So do you trust they're voting enough that potentially it could come back you know to bite you. And so that's where you sometimes see schools of thought about should an ED even be ex officio. Um and I think these are just things that you could we could go on and on cuz I can think of 100 examples of like where this could work or not. But short answer is all of this does change a bit when the ED is voting or, you know, a voting board member from a standpoint of they may have more voice and to be able to cast a vote and even potentially influence the vote even in a stronger way but if they've got the conflict of interest in place that that shouldn't be happening in any kind of large way particularly if you have a board of 30 like you're saying like there's 30 people right like so it's not like this one person that's what happens right you get these large organizations so it's like great we're going to put the ed and the second in command on the board as voting board members but they're two votes out of 30 or whatever so like so so you sort of have to weigh and look at the bigger picture and also think about what what type of influence they have um that's more of the technical answer I guess like on the soft side I hear like you're saying oh my god nobody is happy nobody's happy with this this role right like so what happens and I mean I guess my hope is that you know I I don't know enough about what people are unhappy about to answer that if it's something that is like rising to a really serious level then perhaps that you know that needs to be looked at from like a whistleblower standpoint but if it's more like we just don't like their style that gets a lot tougher right because that's where the board if the board's doing what they should be doing is looking at metrics like how is the organization performing in all levels including staff retention are we getting feedback from staff from time to time to share with us what what they think is working or not, like, and so boards do have some degree of obligation to be looking at that and looking at all those metrics so that hopefully they can pull out when there is like strong dissent among a large group of you. My hope is a board that's not asleep at the wheel or even a small group of the board that's, you know, more active is doing that because this is where you see organizations just kind of crumble because, of these weird things in place. Like we can't go to the board to complain about an ineffective leader when the leader may be very well ineffective. So that was a really long, long answer of mine. Andy push back. I feel like you might push back on (laughs) some of what I said with this one. I don't know.
1: No, I don't think so. I think I agree with everything, everything you said. I, I would just say that the where the staff and everybody is unhappy with the ED is really common. And the board thinks they hung the moon, right? That's really common. That's not an unusual situation. And, and a lot of it is because the staff is in it every day, all day, every day, and kind of sees what goes on. Sometimes the staff doesn't know what the ED actually does. Like the ED is just like, they're never here. Like they're always gone. They seem to take lots of vacation days. And, and, but then, you know, but, but then the board is super happy with the performance of the organization. So there you get this sort of just resentment of like, we're working so hard and this person's never there. Right. That, that could be, that could be part of the scenario. I think like finding out like why the staff is unhappy with the ED, is it really just like they're just a jerk or like what the issue is, I think is probably important to, to be able to answer this question like really appropriately. But yeah, there totally needs to be a performance review. The, that's that's actually required. It's not something that's optional. You have to have a performance review with the board. It's something that the 990 asks about. Um, and, and because you have a board of 30 or this organization has a board of 30, um, it gets a lot harder to do those kinds of things because there's you've spread the responsibility so thinly with such a large number of board members that nobody may actually be doing any of these things because they assume someone else is doing them. So it kind of feels to me like it's sort of a perfect perfect storm for an organization to go off the rails. Um, do the leadership team that has a good relationship with individual board members bring it up? I think that's probably inappropriate. Um, but there are ways that you can, a staff can signal discomfort or unhappiness with the ED that don't involve going around the chain of command. Um, So I, I suggest you investigate those. Like if, if it's something that's really, I mean, if it's just malaise, if you just like, yeah, I don't like them. (laughs) Like nobody likes this person for whatever reason, that's not going to get you. But if there's, you know, financial misdealing, if, they're, if they're being irresponsible, if they're spending money on things they're not really allowed to spend money on, if they're doing end runs around stuff, if they're not serving the mission, um, that's what your whistleblower policy is for. So make sure you have a whistleblower policy and that, um, that it's updated and it allows folks to have uh, conversations about what may be going on in the organization um, outside of the chain of command, in a formal way that doesn't just turn into carping with your buddy over drinks. That did you know what this person's doing? Can you believe it? Right, because that's not going to end well for you, and it's not going to end well for the organization.
0: So it is a wrap. On another episode of Nonprofit Everything, Andy and I hope you have gained some nuggets of information, knowledge, maybe some inspiration. That may be pushing it a little bit, right, Andy?
1: No, I don't think so. <laughs> they're inspired to they're inspired to learn things for themselves and not listen to us.
0: Okay, yes, yes, exactly. So anyways, we appreciate all you do to make the world a better place. And uh, we hope that we are just a small contributor to your lifelong learning journey in all things nonprofit. And as always, we love hearing feedback on what you're liking or what you wish could change. And we talk about that when we get it. So uh, please know we take that seriously. And of course, we love it when you share this with your friends and colleagues. So hitting that share button is great. And uh, last but not least, uh, send us your questions, questions at nonprofiteverything.com. Or you can... Check us out on social or just go check out the website. I went the other day. I actually was trying to find an old episode because I was like, oh gosh, Andy said something super cool. And I need to remember which episode that was in. And I was putting in all sorts of random words into the search feature. So I eventually found it. But all that to say that you can actually search old episodes or look for key topics or keywords, key themes, and it'll pull them up for you. So like when you're trying to narrow it down, uh, it. I mean, we've got 100 plus episodes on there. So there's a lot to pull through. And that's why keywords are your friends. So Anyways, that was a whole hodgepodge of to dos, but my biggest to do is to just keep listening and share. So thank you. That's uh, all for today.